the games we used to play when we were kids. I'm talking about the games where they were completely unsupervised by grown-ups, not organized sports or games of any kind. The games where, like, as kids, we would invent games, or at least we thought we would invent them. I found out later that there was a universal game that we thought we had invented. It, it, was, it went by different names. We called it spread or spread eagle, where, like, if you didn't touch the wall before somebody threw the ball at that wall, then you had to stand against the wall, spread eagle, and they could throw the ball at you as hard as they wanted to with no protection. How many of y'all played a game kind of like that? That was called childhood. That was a beautiful thing. And, and we would, as we would invent the games, we'd also have to invent the rules. And if you invent the rules, then you have to enforce the rules. Even if you're playing a game that's familiar, like let's say football, the yard that I grew up in, there was one sideline that was marked by the sidewalk. It was a straight line. It looked like it was completely uniform. But our other sideline was, was kind of scalloped. It was curved because that was mom's flower bed. And that was the only line we had over there. So we used that. And you could go in. You could go out. And you would still be in bounds. And when the rules are fluid like that, they're always open to interpretation. And when they're open to interpretation, you've got a real risk of some confrontation. And some, some you can kind of get at each other a little bit like this. And when you got to an irresolvable problem, there was always an ancient legal maneuver that was available to us. This goes all the way back to the Mesopotamians. I'm talking, of course, about the legal maneuver called do-over. Remember a do-over? How many times in life as an adult would you love to have a do-over? Tell your neighbor right now with passion and enthusiasm, I call a do-over. Now, <clears throat> hopefully that's not like if you're sitting next to your spouse, you don't mean that in terms of marriage, but I'm saying a lot of times we, we would do that when we were kids, but then we grow up. And the fact is, that grown-ups have do-overs of our own. Hey, cuz, heard you're having money problems. No, you didn't. Listen, I got the answer. You declare bankruptcy, all your problems go away. Creed Bratton has never declared bankruptcy. When Creed Bratton gets in trouble, he transfers his debt to William Charles Schneider. How would that help, Creed? In Monopoly, you go bankrupt, you lose. You don't go by Monopoly, man. That game is nuts. Nobody just picks up get-out-of-jail-free cards. Those things cost thousands. That is a good point. Bankruptcy, Michael, is nature's do-over. It's a fresh start. It's a clean slate. Like the witness protection program. Exactly. Not at all. I've always wanted to be in the witness protection program. Fresh start. No debts, no baggage. I've already got my name picked out. Lord Rupert Everton. I'm a, uh, a shipping merchant who raises fancy dogs. That's the life. I declare bankruptcy! Can we just give it up for Michael Scott? truly one of the great theologians of our time. Because the fact of the matter is, if we can get our minds and our hearts around the childhood concept of a do-over and the grown-up concept of bankruptcy, 
It's at that point that we can actually start to begin to understand the central foundational elements of the Christian faith known as sin and forgiveness. And the reality is, in order for us to understand one of those, we have to understand both of those. These are so foundational to our faith that Jesus even made sure to include this, this idea and this concept in his model prayer. The Lord's Prayer that we've been looking at for the last few weeks includes this idea of, of a do-over or of bankruptcy. If you have your Bibles, look in Matthew chapter number 6. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus is in the midst of his Sermon on the Mount, the most famous sermon ever preached. And in the middle of this, he, be, he teaches that audience, that crowd, how to pray. Now, there, there's another instance that's recorded in the book of Luke where he uses basically the same template, the same model prayer. But in Matthew chapter 6, verse 13, and, and if you maybe you get your Bible on your phone, there's an incredible app, if you're not aware of it, called the Version. incredible biblical resource. Maybe you actually carry an actual book that's a Bible, and if you have neither one of those, we're going to have it on the screen here in just a second. But in Matthew chapter 6, in this model prayer, the Lord's Prayer. These are the words of Jesus as he's teaching us to pray. He says, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Forgive us, Lord, our debts. So Jesus introduces this idea that, that my sin, your sin, actually puts us in, in spiritual debt to God. And that there are people, when they sin against us, it creates a relational debt, and yet central to our experiencing the relationship with God we were created for, central to prayer and our prayer lives, is this idea of forgiveness. Now, we've seen throughout this series that prayer is both the engine and the fuel that drives the Christian faith. If you want to grow in your faith, if you want to experience more of who God is, then prayer will be a regular, consistent part of your life. Now, if, if prayer is the engine and the fuel, I, I think we would be on solid theological footing to say that sin is kind of the sugar in the tank. Sin is, is the thing that, that gums up the engine of our faith and the, it, it, it eliminates the firing power and capacity and potential of the fuel for our faith. And it's because of that that Jesus introduces this idea that when we go to God in prayer, as a, as a regular, consistent habit of our lives, then we are to include in that prayer, in that regular and consistent connection with God, a time of confession. Not only a time of confessing our sins, but also forgiving others sins. Jesus makes it very, very clear that, that this sin thing is a big deal. Now, we love the forgiveness part. I mean, we man, amazing grace. There's a reason why most people are at least a little bit familiar with the song Amazing Grace. Most of us know intuitively, instinctively that we need grace. But the fact of the matter is, I think sometimes we, we can forget just exactly what it is that grace is taking care of, that 
we can forget how powerful grace is because we try to minimize sin. We, we don't like to talk about it a whole lot. We don't like to hear about it a whole lot. And for those of you who are new, if you're just kind of checking us out for the first time, you need to know I am not a, a hellfire and brimstone kind of preacher. That's not my speed. I don't have that gear. I'm not one of these who, who loves to talk about hell and hot and the fire. And, and we, don't, we don't really roll like that around here. But, everybody say but. But I'm doing no one any favors to not explain the truth, the reality of our situation. And the Bible puts a really very, very fine point on our understanding of sin and grace and forgiveness. It's in Romans chapter 6. Romans, of course, is the sixth book of the New Testament. You've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the first four. Then there's Acts. And then Romans. Romans is that letter that the Holy Spirit of God inspired Paul to write to the fledgling church there in Rome. And in Romans chapter 6, he's explaining this whole concept of sin and grace and forgiveness. And look at what he says in Romans chapter 6, verse 23. This is one of those verses that you ought to commit to spiritual memorization, to just kind of metabolize it as a part of who you are spiritually and practically. This is what the Bible says in Romans 6, 23. It says, the wages of sin is death. But, there's that, there's that big but again. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. So the wages of sin, the, the compensation, the actual just reward for your sin or, or for my sin is not it's going to complicate your life, although that's true. It's not, well, it can make it harder than it has to be. The actual result of sin in your life and in my life is death. Death. Absolute alienation and separation from the God of life. The God who created us on purpose, with a purpose. And that sin in my life ruptures that relationship. It is through confession, it is through forgiveness that God, in his amazing grace, repairs that relationship. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. This is the gift of God. Now, when we talk about confessing our sins to God, this is not some kind of a a spiritual hocus-pocus magic spell that all of a sudden makes everything go away. It's actually a lot more involved than that. I, I, maybe the best way to explain it, this coming Tuesday night in, in our world, in our country, someone or, or maybe a, a group of someones are going to collect the Mega Millions Lottery that is up to $1.6 billion. $1.6 billion. That's a lot of scratch. Unless you're the government, that's a lot of money. Now, as a little joke, I just threw that in there just for your fun. Now, I don't know how to tell you this, but 
I'm holding the winning ticket. <laughs> this, this one right here, this, these, this is the winning ticket. Now, before, let me tell you this, I didn't buy this. I didn't pay for this morally. I didn't, I'm not gambling or anything like that. A member of my family gave this to me. And, but, but here's the thing about the mega millions on Tuesday night, 1.6 billion. The odds of winning are about one in 400 million. So if everybody in the United States got a ticket and a few got a couple of tickets, then, then and only then would you have a chance of winning. It's the same odds as if you flipped a coin 28 times and it came up heads every single time. So you're saying there's a chance. <laughs> now these numbers that will win on Tuesday night, these were randomly generated by the computer. The family member who gave this to me didn't even take the time to make up the numbers herself. She just said, go ahead and make something up. Throw it down. Here we go. Forgiveness is not a random grace generator. Forgiveness of our sins is a carefully constructed, divinely orchestrated paradigm created by God himself to accomplish that which we cannot accomplish on our own. You see, the thing about grace, it, it means by definition, you cannot, I cannot earn it. You will never be good enough to earn the favor of God. God's morality, God's standard for behavior is moral perfection. He's God. So he gets to set the rules. And God says, in order to exist and live in relationship with me, one has to have moral perfection. Good luck. Now, we, we can argue, we like to think that God grades on the curve. We like to say, well, I'm better than that guy. Did you see who was at church on Sunday? Glad the roof didn't cave in. God doesn't grade on the curve. His standard is moral perfection. And the reality is that none of us hits that mark. Elsewhere in the book of Romans, it says, all have sinned. All have sinned. And the second sin enters my life, the second it enters your life, then we are automatically alienated and estranged from our holy, perfect, heavenly Father. But, but, the free gift of God, this grace, this unmerited, undeserved, unearnable, unachievable, unattainable gift is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so when we come to God and we confess our sin, when we call it out by name, we, we ask God to forgive us, to find any offensive way that is within us, then we begin to experience the free flow 
of the grace of God in our lives. It's at that point that we have the opportunity to experience that for which we were created. This is who God is. This is what he does. And it's not only here in the Lord's Prayer that Jesus makes this point. He makes this point repeatedly over and over and over again. Jesus repeatedly ties our experience of grace, of mercy, to the extent to which we are willing to extend it to other people. That raises the stakes in our lives. Remember, he says, Father, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, as we forgive those who are in debt to us. Let me just ask you by a show of hands, how many of you in the last, let's say, six months have had somebody do you wrong in some way, shape, or another? If you've had somebody in your life speak ugly to you, betray you, uh, forget to pick you up from school, or, you know, whatever. Now, some of you are like, whoa, 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 that's, that's kind of hitting close to home. But I'm just saying and for the record, I'm right there with you. I remember when Joseph was born, Emily was two years old. And so we had been in the parenting game for a little while. But when you, when you add another child to the mix, that's not, that's not linear growth. That's not growth by addition. That's multiplication growth. And even though we went from one to two, that's 100% growth overnight. And it can stress even the most disciplined systems around about Two weeks after we got Joseph home from the hospital, we were loading up the car, going out to eat as a family. We said, we're doing the thing, man. Yeah. Got in the car. Emily was strapping herself in, made sure we heard two clicks in the car seat, raised the garage door, got about halfway down the driveway and went, oh, yeah, we have two kids now. We left Joe inside. Don't tell him. He's in college right now. He, he doesn't know that happened. <laughs> but when we are the one who is wronged, that, that can be hard to forgive sometimes. But, but Jesus says, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. You know, Jesus in the book of Matthew, chapter 18, he, he told a story to illustrate this point, a parable that he frequently used to communicate eternal truths to temporal people like you and me. And, and in this story that Jesus told, there was a wealthy king who was calling some of the debts he was owed by his servants, he was calling those debts due. And he summoned one of his servants and he said, hey, the, the money that I loaned you, I want back now. And the amount that Jesus references in the original language was 10,000 talents. That, that would be the equivalent of about 375 tons of silver. Now, I know it's not gold, but just run with me for a second. 375 tons of silver. Currently, silver is trading around $14.5 an ounce. 
$14.5 an ounce for 375 tons. That's how much this servant owed the king. Well, the servant didn't have the money to repay the king, and the king immediately said, well, that's fine. I'm going to sell you and your family into slavery to satisfy as much of the debt as I can just to get, some, just to get pennies on the dollar back. And, and something inside the servant, something triggered, and he just, he just threw himself on the mercy of the king. He just said, I'm, I'm begging you, do not sell my family. Do not sell me. I'm begging you, forgive the debt. And for whatever reason, Jesus doesn't explain why. He just says that the king had mercy on the servant. He had mercy, and he said, all right. Debt cleared. Go on your way. Now, can you imagine, just, just to, to put it into context, 375 tons of silver at $14.50 an ounce, 375 tons equals 12 million ounces. I just did that in my head. 12 million ounces at 14.50 an ounce is 174 million dollars. 174 million dollars. This servant walked out of here with a little spring in his step. Can you imagine? How many of y'all like to get mail? Let me just see a show of hands. I mean, I'm being serious. If you like to get mail, I do. I'm, I'm still a kid at heart. I'm not talking about stuff that, you know, like all that stuff. I'm talking about like stuff that's addressed to you. Like when you see, here, here's what I, when I see Mac Richard on, on a letter that somebody has written by hand, I'm kind of like, oh, that's pretty cool. Nobody does that anymore. And, but if I see Thomas Richard, I'm pitching that. But, but letters, I love getting mail. The worst piece of mail I ever got in my life was when I was in college. I had been enrolled in the University of Texas for less than a month. And there in my dorm mail slot was a letter addressed to Thomas Richard. I didn't know yet. And I opened it up and it said, Dear Thomas, MasterCard believes in your future. Well, I mean, that's MasterCard. They've clearly done some homework. I mean, they don't just send these out to chimps, I'm telling you. And so I, I bought the lie. I signed up on the spot, got a credit card at like 42% interest compounded monthly or something. <laughs> and man, you, those, some of you, that's a laugh of recognition. You know where this story's going. I racked up so much debt. I, and it wasn't like tens of thousands of dollars, but it was thousands of dollars of debt. I'd go out to eat with my friends. I'd go, hey, y'all pay me cash. I'll put it on my credit card. Stupid. Dumb. And so when Julie and I got married, that was a little wedding present. Honey, thousands of dollars of consumer debt. Love you. She was like, oh no, I don't think so. We paid that off. We worked. We scrimped. We saved. We ate a lot of pasta. My point is, I know what financial debt feels like. 
to have that hanging over your head for years. No, no matter how much comes in, you know that, that you still got that over there. And Jesus is telling us here that this is the same thing that happens spiritually. The debt that we have been forgiven by God is so enormous. It is so great. We could never repay it. But, but he continues the parable, and he goes, this servant who was forgiven $174 million worth of debt, he went to another servant that owed him roughly about a day's wages. And he said, hey, that money that you owe me, I, I need that now. And that fellow servant didn't have it, and, and the first servant was indignant. He said, fine, then I will throw you into debtor's prison until the debt is paid. Well, the servant started talking. And they're like, hey, did you, did you hear what servant number one did to servant number two? He, he was forgiven this massive debt by the king. And this, this little debt that was owed to him by servant number two, about a day's wages, one day's wages. He didn't forgive that. Threw that guy in prison. They went and told the king. They said, hey, king, you ain't going to believe this. The guy that you forgave $174 million worth of debt, he had one of your other servants thrown in prison as a debtor for simply not being able to pay back a day's wage. Look at what Jesus said. Matthew chapter 18. Then the king called in the man he had forgiven and he said, you evil servant, I forgave you that tremendous debt because you pleaded with me. Shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? Then the angry king sent the man to prison to be tortured until he had paid his entire debt. That's what my heavenly father will do to you if you refuse to forgive your brothers and sisters from your heart. Don't think that we will experience forgiveness if we're not willing to extend forgiveness. The stakes are sky high. Some of you are thinking right now, Mac, you don't know. You don't know how I was wronged by that former spouse or how that, that, that business partner took everything and I had to start over. And you're right. I, I, I don't know the particulars of your situation or circumstances but I do know this. I do know that the debt we owe God, our infraction, our sin, cost God everything. Our debt was so great that it cost God his son, Jesus, his life. And, and so, Whatever somebody's done to me, man, that, that's, that's child's play compared to what I've done to God. That's, that's not an easy truth, but it's the truth. And so once I'm willing to forgive someone else for what they've done to me, doesn't mean I wasn't wrong. Doesn't mean necessarily that the re relationship will be repaired between that other person and me. That other person doesn't even have to admit they were wrong or confess what they did for you to forgive them. 
Doesn't mean you have to go back and trust them again. But it means you forgive. It means you choose to let go of the grudge. You choose to let the anger and the bitterness go. They, they, they don't deserve it. They, they didn't earn your forgiveness. But I didn't earn God's forgiveness. I don't deserve, I'm not entitled to the forgiveness of God. Jesus says the wages of sin is death. What I'm entitled to because of my sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life. It is the life for which we have been created. And it is there for the taking for anyone who would receive, for anyone who would appropriate the forgiveness and the grace of God. So when we pray, Father, forgive us our debts, just as we have forgiven our debtors. There's a lot going on in that. Those aren't just words that we repeat by rote memory. I want to ask you to bow your heads for just a brief moment. And in this moment, I want to just, I want to just put something on the table, just very, very directly. And that is that the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus. That's a fact. And that the wages of sin is death. That, that's the compensation. That's the just reward for sin in your life or in my life. If you're here today and you've never taken hold of the free gift of God through Christ Jesus our Lord, we want to give you the opportunity to do that. Just right where you're sitting, to pray a prayer of receiving, a prayer of beginning a relationship with God. Just right where you're sitting, right now, we invite you to pray silently, talking to God from your heart to his. He'll hear you because he knows your heart. Just silently say to God, Lord, I need you. I need your grace, your forgiveness. I'm asking you to forgive my debt to you. I'm confessing my sin so that I can accept your forgiveness, so that I can receive the free gift of your amazing grace. Jesus, I believe that you died on the cross for me, that you rose again for me, and I will follow you from this moment forward with everything I've got. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for making that available and for making me aware I pray this prayer in your name. 
ask you just to remain with your heads bowed for another moment, a, a sacred moment. But if that was your prayer and you meant it, this is the greatest moment of your life. And as a church, as a, as a family of faith, we want to help. We want to come alongside and be a family with you. And so I want to ask you to do a couple of things just briefly. First of all, if you would, just quietly and in this moment of prayer, if you would just open up the program that you got when you came in today. And when you open it, you'll see right inside the front flap, there's a thing called the Connect card. If you will, just fill that card out. You'll notice about, I don't know, about a third of the way down is a place to indicate I committed my life to Christ this week. Once you've completed that, just tear it off along the perforation there. And before you leave, when we dismiss in just a minute, on your way out, just take that card and hand it to one of our ushers, one of our hosts. And give us the privilege. Help us fulfill our responsibility to help you. And just let us know that with that card. That'll allow us to, to come alongside at whatever pace works for you in whatever way that we can to help. And then the second thing I want to ask you to do, if you would, as our heads are bowed for just another second, if you prayed and stepped into that relationship with Christ today, would you just kind of quietly but unmistakably lift your hand and hold it up high over your head for just a minute? Just hold your hand up. Your hand in the air is, that, is a physical statement representing a spiritual commitment that you made. Responding to that unearnable, unachievable grace initiative. And just know you're surrounded by people who want to help. And our, our family tradition around here is, as you put your hands down, we're going to put our hands together just to tell you, welcome home. Welcome home.